Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas, August 3rd, are still on the minds of some Americans. After those latest shootings, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are considering whether Congress should encourage states to approve so-called red flag laws to remove guns from people at risk of harming themselves or others. Now, Connecticut was the first state in the nation to pass such a law 20 years ago. Coming up, we'll talk about the debate surrounding red flag laws just days after it was used here in Connecticut to remove guns from the home of a Stafford Springs man. And later, we'll also hear how a Hearst, Connecticut media investigation has uncovered a troubling problem within the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. This is a nonprofit organization for at-risk children that started right here in our state. First, just months ago, there was a tension on the growing backlog of immigration hearings in federal courthouses around the country. In Connecticut, the number of cases has grown, and now certain hearings once heard in Connecticut are being transferred to Massachusetts. Why the change, and what's the impact on Connecticut-based immigrants and their attorneys? Uh, joining us by phone now is Susan Haig. She's a political writer and statehouse reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, Sue, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Now, you were one of the first to report on this plan uh, where uh, uh, federal officials are uh, ending certain detention hearings, I believe, at Hartford Immigration Court. This is the only immigration court in the state of Connecticut. Uh, When did you first learn about this problem? I happened to be covering um, an immigration-related news conference that the Attorney General William Tong had back in uh, late July. It was about how the federal immigration authorities, they were uh, deporting residents with criminal records, even though they had been pardoned. And when I was there, there was a lawyer who uh, represented a woman that has this whole problem with her pardon not being recognized. And she was telling myself and another reporter that she had just found out that the Hartford Immigration Court would uh, no longer be uh, handling detained cases. So she said that would mean that people would have to go out of state for those hearings. Now, those particular, so these are detention hearings. So who does that, um, I guess, refer to? Uh, People that are being deported. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are detention hearings that are held in Hartford. And what would happen is they would, whether or not they would want to stay in, they're trying to fight their deportation. So then they would have to uh, go possibly to Boston I, I'm not sure. I'm thinking maybe New York. The, the weird thing about this story is, is that I haven't been able to get it confirmed by uh, ICE or Department of Justice, which um, the Department of Justice they run the uh, they they have the judges, and then ICE actually figures out who goes in before the judges, and they won't uh, comment on it. That's Susan Haig, who's a political writer and statehouse reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, we wanted to bring into our conversation uh, Connecticut U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, welcome back to where we live. Good morning. Great to be with you again. So when did you hear about uh, this change at Hartford Immigration Court? And what have you heard so far, Senator Blumenthal? We were alerted to this change 
first I will say uh, Sue Haig has done some excellent reporting on it, but we also began hearing from lawyers and other officials about a change in the policy of the Executive Office for Immigration Review, as it's called, within the United States Department of Justice. And we think we've confirmed that they have essentially shut down these hearings beginning July 1, which is about when uh, Sue Haig began hearing about it and doing her reporting. And what this means, uh, let's be very clear, is that people need to bring their witnesses, their lawyers, everyone to Hartford rather than Boston. The people involved in these hearings have been here for, many of them, decades, raising children here, holding jobs, paying taxes, and they may have orders for deportation that were unenforced for many of those years because they missed a court date or because their lawyer misadvised them, and now they're in danger of summarily being deported literally within days or a couple of weeks and detained in the meantime, unable to really present their case. That's the point here. There's so many hurdles to presenting their witnesses, their case, their side. Now, how many individuals do we know this could possibly impact Senator Blumenthal? I had mentioned at the top of the show, there's already a backlog in immigration courts around the country. And I'm just curious of of the detention hearings that were being held at Hartford Immigration Court right on Main Street in downtown Hartford. Do we know how many people this would impact going having to go to Boston? Well, there are thousands of these cases in Hartford every year. We have no precise numbers as to how many them involve these kinds of detainees. And one of the questions that we've asked in a letter to the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Kevin McAleenan, is in fact, the reasons for the change, the numbers of judges, the numbers of cases, what types of cases are being heard still in Hartford. Because, and here's the other point, and it is reflected in Sue Haig's frustration with the lack of transparency, this department has been totally unforthcoming, even to United States senators, uh, as to what the numbers are. I'm curious, uh, uh, Sue Haig, who's with us from the Associated Press, uh, obviously you're based in Connecticut and you're reporting about this issue impacting uh, uh, people in Connecticut. Uh, Again, uh, certain detention hearings uh, being transferred to Boston out of Connecticut. But do we know um, if this is also something that Homeland Security is doing in other states where they're trying to uh, make transfers uh, based on maybe uh, caseload and uh, that can prove to be a hardship for people when they have to travel so far? I've asked, and that's another thing that I haven't been able to uh, find out. Uh, I've asked around through the Associated Press through my colleagues, and I haven't heard of anybody yet that this has come up in other states. But it's something that I've asked ICE, and they haven't responded to. And the lawyers that I've spoken to said they haven't heard of any other states yet. Uh, something uh, that I wanted to bring up with you, uh, Sue Haig, is uh, uh, certain individuals, including the ACLU Connecticut Public Policy and Advocacy Director, Melvin Medina, um, noted that at Hartford Immigration Court, they actually have pretty high bonds. And so this idea that some detention hearings being transferred out of state, could that be, uh, I guess, a positive outcome for some individuals? Yeah, and, and it's still a wait and see, he says. But I, I found it interesting. He they pointed me to a story that Sarah, uh, sorry, a study that Syracuse University did, where they looked at 2018 figures, and it, it, in terms of uh, 
detainees that were able to be released by posting bond. And they found like there were huge differences in um, vibe outcomes based on the, certain, the court location in Connecticut and um, Tacoma, Washington. Uh, those immigration courts had the highest median bond amounts uh, during the first eight months of 2018. And these bond amounts can range from about $5,000 to a high of $15,000. Senator Blumenthal, what do you know about uh, these high bonds coming out of specifically, uh, you know, Hartford Immigration Court? What's your response to possibly that being something that wouldn't be an issue for people if their hearings are are maybe moved to Boston, Massachusetts? There ought to be some standard for bonds that applies to both Hartford and Boston, Uh, there's no real advantage to moving a detainee to Hartford when the expense of having the attorney travel, the burdens to witnesses appearing. Think of it for yourself. If you had to present a case involving your house or your job in Hartford, in Boston rather than Hartford, Mm -hmm. and go up there every day, make the trip from, let's say, Fairfield County, because after all, a lot of these Folks are detainees from all around the state. It imposes a tremendous burden. So, yes, uh, the bond may be smaller in Boston. We may know it or hear it anecdotally. There are no really reliable studies done. But that's no justification for moving all cases, every single one of them, up to Hartford, imposing that additional burden. And we should note, uh, if someone doesn't show up for a detention hearing, how quickly could um, Immigration and Customs Enforcement remove an individual from the country? They can remove them overnight. They can put them on a plane and send them abroad. Uh, Before we go, Senator Blumenthal, uh, so you have written a letter again uh, to Homeland Security officials, and you have not yet received a response. I have not yet received a response. The letter was written on August 14th. And we're hoping for a response very quickly. Um, If I may add also on another topic that you're going to be covering, red flag statutes, we're working very hard with Senator Lindsey Graham on a bipartisan proposal that we hope will be considered by the United States Senate. And I'd be glad to share more about that with you as well. Uh, Yeah, we'll be talking about that uh, later on in the show. I don't know if you have a chance to to call back in then, uh, Senator Blumenthal, but we will mention that is, again, a proposal, a bipartisan proposal, just looking at the effectiveness of red flag laws, especially since uh, Connecticut was the first in the nation 20 years ago uh, to um, have uh, such a law uh, to remove uh, guns from an individual's home if they are risk themselves or others. But we do appreciate your time uh, joining the show uh, today to talk about uh, this uh, problem that uh, popped up for uh, some detainees and their families uh, being told that their hearings are being moved out of Connecticut uh, to Boston. Senator Blumenthal, thanks for calling in today. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. Also with us, Susan Haig, who's a political writer and State House reporter for the Associated Press. Uh, Sue, we'll look forward uh, to your uh, follow-up to this story. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to learn more about what's likely the first national accounting of child sex abuse within local boys and girls clubs across the country. Reporters from Hearst Connecticut Media that led the investigation are going to join us coming up, and you can too. We actually have a new toll-free number. Here it is, 888-720-WMPR. You can call that number again to join the conversation, 888-720-WMPR. WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With more than 4,000 locations in communities across the country, most of us have either heard of or gone to a neighborhood boys and girls club. The organization's mission is to meet the needs of at-risk kids, but a recent Hearst, Connecticut media investigation has found the Boys and Girls Clubs of America and its local affiliates have failed to protect all of the children they serve. Hearst, Connecticut reporters examined thousands of civil and criminal court documents and found 250 victims of sexual abuse across 30 states, individuals who say they were, they were sexually abused as children at the hands of employees, volunteers, and other members of Boys and Girls Clubs of America affiliates. We wanted to hear more about this uh, months-long investigation. So joining me now in studio is Lisa Yannick Litwiller, who's investigative systems editor for Hearst, Connecticut Media. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also uh, one of the reporters, I believe, uh, who led this investigation, Hannah Dellinger, a National Hearst Reporting Fellow based in Houston. Hannah's join, joining us by phone. Hannah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And I also mention, want to mention our new uh, uh, number to call in to join the conversation. It's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. I'll start with you, uh, Lisa. So what prompted this investigation of the Boys and Girls Clubs? Well, Hannah started covering a recently filed lawsuit that involved the Greenwich Boys and Girls Club. Uh, And she, like a good reporter, wondered if this was a pervasive issue, if child sexual abuse happened at Boys and Girls Clubs often. And a Google search and some digging revealed that there wasn't a national accounting or list or public facing account of these sexual uh, sexual abuse cases. And she asked uh, if we could sort of write a story that highlighted some of the news articles that she found. And we decided that we really thought we could build that database for people since the Boys and Girls Club of America didn't have it. Now, we should know, again, these are Boys and Girls Clubs uh, found around the country. But, you know, why is it particularly of interest here in our state, Lisa? Well, I think first, the Greenwich lawsuit sort of spurred it. Um, And as we started looking at it, we decided that we wanted to take this local story and make it national because there was a need and the scope was national. Also, the Boys and Girls Club was founded in Hartford. So it had an extra local tie for us. Mm. Uh, Hannah, who's with us on the phone, uh, tell us more about this Greenwich case. And as you were, you and your team were uncovering uh, these stories, you know, how pervasive of an issue uh, was child sex abuse within this work? organization. Right. Um, So as Lisa mentioned, it began um, with uh, simply covering a lawsuit uh, filed against the Greenwich Club. Um, It started out with three men saying that they were sexually abused and raped by an underage counselor there and that adults knew about it. And basically, um, every story we did, more men would come forward. We heard from attorneys and then more lawsuits were filed. Uh, And then we came to learn that Uh, Allegedly, three adults uh, knew about it and didn't do anything. Um, So I began uh, Googling and within, you know, a week or so found 60 cases. And yes, um, child sex abusers try to seek out opportunities anywhere to do this, but this is the largest youth organization in America. And it was the first time I found that anybody had really dug into this issue to see what they're doing to prevent it. Mm. Now, starting with the Greenwich case, who were, uh, who are the alleged abusers? Um, so the alleged abuser uh, is a man named Andrew Atkinson, who I should mention has never been uh, criminally charged in this case. Um, I did find court documents. He was charged 
um, with soliciting a minor in another state and pleaded down to a lesser charge. Um, he was underage at the time, but um, the the director of the club at the time and his son and a swim co- coach are alleged to have firsthand knowledge and did nothing more than um, put the alleged abuser on a quote-unquote timeout. Mm. Uh, since uh, the investigation uh, has become, uh, you know, printed and, and gotten a lot of publicity, you know, what has the Boys and Girls Clubs of America told you, Hannah, about uh, these particular cases at local affiliates? So the the argument is made a lot um, that a lot like the Greenwich case that happened in the '70s and early '80s. So I think that the defense in the beginning was, oh, we know a lot more now than we did back then. But once we interviewed National, we found out that um, some of the, the, you know, things that you would think would be a no-brainer to prevent uh, this kind of abuse were just uh, suggestions and not requirements until recently. Um, Like, for example, it wasn't a requirement until 2014 that um, local affiliates report critical safety incidents to the national organization. And still to this day, there's no public accounting of that. Um, And since we published this, the national organization has said that they are going to be doing a uh, third-party review of all of those policies and will make the findings of that and their plan to remedy any issues they find public. Uh, if you're joining us, uh, Hannah Dellinger is a National Hearst Reporting Fellow based in Houston, Texas. Uh, she's joining us by phone today to talk about a six-month-long investigation by Hearst, Connecticut, of the Boys and Girls Clubs of America and their local affiliates. It's, they, I believe, the first national accounting of, of child sex abuse within, as Hannah mentioned, the, one of the largest or the largest youth organization uh, in the country. In studio with me is Lisa Yannick Litwiller, Investigative Systems Editor for Hearst, Connecticut Media. You can Join us to 888-720-WNPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Hannah, is it surprising to hear that uh, the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, which we did ask uh, if they wanted to join us today, they declined. But th- it's surprising that they haven't had these kinds of checks in place, given all the attention on the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts of America, uh, the fact that there are so many children that you know that depend and their families on this organization in communities that they wouldn't have had these kinds of screenings uh, to make sure that there weren't um, you know people within their staff that would hurt children. Right. Well, I certainly uh, do agree that the standards on child safety and protocols have evolved over the years. But uh, this organization, they lobby Congress and present themselves as leaders in their industry and leaders in background checking and things like that. So um, to look closer into it and see that um, there were some inconsistencies with that was a little concerning. Um, you, you mentioned church abuse and all that. I think it's worth noting, and kind of the title of our project uh, gets at this, but these kids are by nature at-risk youth, so they come from homes where they may not have a lot of support, so they're even more vulnerable um, to this kind of abuse. A predator seek them out to groom them because they know that they're more vulnerable. So if you're serving those kinds of children, advocates say it's even more important. Um, it's always important, but especially in those cases, to make sure you're doing everything you can. Mm. Uh, Lisa, who's with us uh, from Hearst Connecticut Media in studio, uh, this organization does not keep a public record of these allegations. Uh, it, why? 
They uh, their justification for not having a public facing record is that they require affiliate clubs to uh, file a report with law enforcement. And because there is a public record, it's public. That is their justification right now about having a public-facing account. Um, they did mention in their statement after our stories published that they would evaluate that and see if there are some other things that they can do to have that information that information public. But we found that even though the records are public, there are police filings or maybe court documents. It took a team of seven journalists six months a lot of resources, a lot of know-how, a lot of learning to find 95 cases. Uh, And maybe there are more that we didn't find. So it's not so easy as getting a public record. Mm -hmm. And when things go public, uh, oftentimes if a charge is filed or if someone uh, is convicted of a crime, uh, there is uh, possibly a news story or there is a public record of it. But I'm wondering, Hannah, of we know that there are adults out there who prey on children. And if they can get away with it, if there are allegations, I mean, what do we know of the organization of how they share information or make sure that these people are not going to work for another organization that uh, takes care of or has children uh, among them? So from our understanding at the moment, there really is, other than reporting to police, there's really nothing stopping um, abusers from jumping to club to club. One of the recent cases we found um, in Sonoma Valley, California, uh, there was a man who has been convicted criminally of uh, raping and molesting many boys um, at the Sonoma Valley Club, Paul Dwayne Kilgore. Um, there's a civil suit now that says that the club had firsthand knowledge that Kilgore was abusing kids and instead of reporting it to police, allegedly conducted its own investigation, told him that he couldn't be spending time alone with children, and then he quit and then moved to another boys and girls club down the street. Um, so when we asked the national organization about that, um, we asked, okay, so if someone's not convicted, but you think that they're credibly accused, what's to stop them from jumping to another one? And their response was, if you're coming from another club, you have to get a letter of recommendation from the previous one. And then I asked, well, what happens if you just don't disclose that you used to work at that club? And they just, they didn't really have a response for that. Uh, This is where we live. Hannah Dellinger with us, a National Hearst Reporting Fellow based in Houston, Texas, as we focus on an investigation by Hearst Connecticut Media looking at child sex abuse within Boys and Girls Clubs of America, local affiliates across the country. I mentioned earlier we reached out to the the national organization for an interview. They declined. Uh, In their statement, uh, it was a long statement uh, they provided, uh, they did say that Boys and Girls Clubs of America tracks and is aware of allegations of abuse at local clubs, and we require every allegation to be reported both to law enforcement and to the national organization. But that line really uh, stuck out to me, uh, Lisa Yannick Litwiller, who's also with me uh, from Hearst, Connecticut, because uh, they track and are aware of allegations, but they also, in 2016, uh, a colleague, uh, Ken Dixon from Hearst, Connecticut, reported the national organization lobbied against a bill here in our state that would have required more oversight of their organization, including mandated state and federal background checks to weed out possible child abusers. Tell us about that particular bill. 
Well, they uh, they successfully lobbied against it, and it sounds like there are people that may be talking about bringing that back to the to the legislators. But it basically would have required them to be treated the same way that a daycare maybe or a camp would be treated. Uh, and they said the Boys and Girls Club National at the time said that it would limit the possibility of them being able to serve the population that they were serving in the way that they could because of cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was their argument. I, I saw some buzz on Twitter about it where people said they remember walking into the room when that was being lobbied and there were two rows of Boys and Girls Club officials there to lobby against this move to have more oversight over the clubs. So this is, a, again, a law, uh, mandated reporters. That's something that, uh, you know, people who work in public schools uh, have to That's follow. Right. But some of these uh, boys and girls clubs, aren't they affiliated with local schools? Isn't it so a pipeline of uh, these are at-risk kids that need support? Let's send them to the boys and girls clubs. But those staff don't have the same uh, requirements that uh, public school uh, staff do in terms of uh, knowing what child and sex abuse looks like. That's and, right. And it varies from state to state. There's no standard because it's up to the affiliate and it's up to the local, the state laws. And I, I'd like to add, too, that I think it's important to note. Um, so, for example, staffing ratios um, are not a requirement. Um, they have suggestions for boys and girls clubs. Um, but when we asked them uh, why isn't it a requirement, their response was, well, many states um, have government oversight of these after-school care uh, places, but now we're seeing the evidence that they did actually lobby against having that oversight, at least in, in this case in Connecticut. I'm also curious about uh, how the statute limitation plays into uh, what you and your team have discovered, uh, Hannah, in terms of, you know, different states have now uh, looked at statute of limitations related to civil cases. But what exactly does Connecticut have on the books and how would it help, uh, say, the people in Greenwich who say they were abused by a staffer at the Boys and Girls Club there? Right. Um, So Connecticut did just pass landmark legislation to expand uh, civil and criminal statute of limitations, and that's supposed to come into effect this fall. Um, So the attorney uh, in the Greenwich case wrote a letter to the governor um, saying uh, this isn't enough, Um, and he was advocating for a one-year look-back window like the Child's uh, Victims Act in New York uh, just opened up uh, last week. Um, and he, that attorney said that um, of 12 men, uh, I believe uh, four of them, maybe more, um, still won't meet those new statute of limitations in the Greenwich case. So they still will never get um, any justice, according to their attorney. Mm. Lisa, did you want to add to the statute of limitations and what people have before them here in Connecticut, what other states are doing? So we found that in states that have already expanded statutes of limitation, there were a larger percentage of cases. And we found a lot of advocates and attorneys that said it takes somebody a long time often to report their sexual abuse as a child. The average age of a person who uh, reports it or comes forward is 52, even though it happened to them as a child. So having that l- large amount of time or maybe no no limit on the amount of time to report it allows people to seek justice when they are ready to do that. Um, if you attended a Boys and Girls Club, maybe you volunteer, we'd like to hear from you about, again, this investigation and how uh, these allegations and cases of, of individuals affiliated with uh, these local clubs, uh, um, allegations of uh, child sex abuse. Uh, you can join us at the number uh, 888 
720-9677. That's our new toll-free number, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Lisa, you mentioned uh, reporters uh, who know how to dig into uh, records. It took a long time for your investigation uh, to find, again, uh, these 95 cases, these 250 uh, victims. Uh, but I'm curious now, uh, as people are learning more about this investigation, you've also put up this database. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about the information that people can find if they go to your website. If you go to the database, you find a map or a listing and you can search by state or by club name and you will find a pin on the map for every case that we have on there right now. We'll be adding more cases through this week as they go through the final review process also. So it will be continue continuously updated. Um, there you'll find if the alleged perpetrator was not a minor, you will find their name, uh, a mugshot if they were arrested and and convicted. And then you'll find a link to a story that uh, tells the story of what happened based on our research and our court records. One of the things that we found is that many of the cases either never had local reporting done or the reporting was so long ago that it doesn't exist on the internet. So we wanted people to be able to first know that there were allegations of abuse connected to that club, and also they could read what it really was. We wrote those stories. And we'll link to our website, uh, wmpr.org slash where we live, that you could get uh, to the Hearst, Connecticut media investigation. Uh, Hannah Dellinger, who's with us, a National Hearst Reporting Fellow, she's on the phone uh, based in Houston, Texas. Uh, Hannah, what has been the response? What have you been hearing, not only from uh, readers, but from other states that are interested in learning more about the Boys and Girls Club local affiliates there? Um, uh, well, mostly uh, the response that I've gotten so far is uh, I've gotten a lot of personal messages from survivors saying, thank you for doing this. I feel like I'm not as alone. I feel like people are listening. We've gotten a lot of tips on new cases that we're going to start looking into. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, I haven't really gotten many negative reactions other than the, the question, like, this happens everywhere. Why are you focusing on them? And I guess the answer to that would be because they are the largest youth organization in America. And earlier you had uh, said that uh, since the invest uh, investigation was uh, made public, uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, uh, of America, they are going to have a third party uh, looking into uh, their reporting and how they get information out to local clubs, uh, looking at uh, ways that they can make sure that these uh, local staff are uh, trained and have the right information if allegations come to light. Uh, what do we know of the timeline of that uh, third party uh, looking at the national organization, and will that information be made public, Hannah? So that's a great question that I am going to ask them. Um, they haven't really given us a timeline for, for this review, but they did announce it within hours of us publishing the first story uh, on Thursday. Um, they did say that the findings of the review will be made available to the public, and if they need to make any improvements per that review, they will make their plan um, for those improvements available to the public as well. Um, and another thing I think it's, is important, um, they said that they would reevaluate um, their, how, uh, how they um, uh, relay information to the public when an allegation is made and how they're going to relay that information to local affiliates and parents as well. Uh, Nancy's calling from New Haven. Nancy, go ahead. I'm Nancy, and I'm in New Haven. And I want to grandfather, longtime volunteer at the Boys and Girls 
it was the West End of Boston, and it was out of time, which is he died years ago. With Nancy and. Nancy, unfortunately, your uh, phone line is uh, going in and out, which is too bad. But I believe you said your grandfather was a volunteer at, at a Boston Boys and Girls Club. My grandfather was a volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club. Is this better? Yes, go ahead. And um, he died 50 years ago. But at the time, in his during his lifetime, the Boys and Girls Club, he was a volunteer there. That was his life. It was the most important thing to him. And he volunteered to help children who were you know, had no advantages, he kind of, you know, helped them. And they did a lot. It was volunteer-driven, and it seemed like a really great place for kids to be, and I'm just shocked that this is happening now. Mm. And then, uh, Nancy, uh, I'm just curious, you probably heard uh, some of the uh, proposals or changes that the Boys and Girls Clubs of America is going to put forth now. Um, Do you think that's... uh, uh, good enough in terms of, of what has been disclosed by this investigation? I'm really not sure because I think it varies from state to state, but I think that they should have everybody fingerprinted. Everybody who works with children should be fingerprinted and go through, you know, a safety check with the police. That's one thing, and I'm sure you can't rule out people who are going to be first-time offenders, but people should not be left alone with children. They should always have to have two adults with adults. Well, thank you, uh, Nancy, for your call here on Where We Live. Uh, Lisa, she mentioned, you know, it varies from state to state. Uh, when you looked at the cases, uh, Hearst Media, Hearst Connecticut Media, when you d- found these cases, uh, primarily were there a lot of them in chunks in particular states? Some states that have expanded statutes of limitations, we did find more. And there were, if there's a larger population, there were more incidents that we found. If the the court systems were more accessible, we found more cases. It's hard to say if the chunks uh, show a pattern in a particular state or not. But I wanted to say... um, I think that the mission of the Boys and Girls Clubs is great. I think it's admirable. I think for me, the issue that I keep running up against in my mind is that as a parent, I don't have access to any information about people who have been accused at a club. And I think that parents should have that information so they can make an educated decision. And those, as a parent, uh, taking my journalism hat off, I don't have time to do a journalistic background check on every club or every person at the club. That should be done by the club itself and it should be available. Uh, Hannah Dellinger, I wanted to go back to you again. Uh, She's a National Hearst Reporting Fellow based in Houston, Texas. Uh, You were leading this investigation uh, with a great team at Hearst, Connecticut, uh, over months uh, trying to find this information. But you also have a a personal connection uh, to this topic. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your connection to the reporting work you've done? Right. Um, So I've I've never, full disclosure, never attended a Boys and Girls Club. Um, But when I was 15 years old, I was um, assaulted by an adult um, during a school activity. And I had to go um, through the process of reporting that to police and had to go to court. Um, So by chance, um, my, my company sent me to California to get court records because that's where many of our cases were. Um, So by chance, I ended up having to go back to the same courthouse where I went, um, I was called to testify. And um, it it was, it it was very challenging to, I guess, um, 
to go through that. Um, I never thought I would have to go back there. Uh, I did it for this project, and I'm glad that it did take me back there because it actually helped me process a lot and realize that none of that was my fault. And the way that the people reacted to my assault, the way that adults treated me after it wasn't right. Um, so I, I think that I've gotten a lot of responses from people saying, thank you for sharing this. I went through similar things. And I just feel like the more I didn't want to make this about myself. Of course, this is about the the hundreds of victims we found. But I just think the more that we talk about this and the more we talk about the mental health issues that come out of being um, abused as a child, uh, the better it is for all survivors. Lisa Yannick Litwiller, who's in studio with me, who's the investigative systems editor for Hearst Connecticut Media. Uh, talk about um, maybe some of the conversations Hearst had in terms of, you know, this was a, a, a investigation uh, that Hannah uh, approached you about uh, from what she had found out um, by looking up these kinds of stories. But knowing her personal connection, you know, how did you uh, decide to move forward on this, uh, thinking about her well-being, reporting on this topic, which is very difficult? Well, first, I want to say that I feel a lot of pride uh, in Hannah for telling her story and being brave and and uh, offering that transparency and that look inside a victim's perspective on this. I think that she's very powerful and her story is powerful. Uh, I actually learned of Hannah's experience halfway through the project. Uh, it wasn't about her. And she is a real fighter and she wanted to do this for everyone. And she shared her story. And then she went to California. And I did also did not know that she was going to the same courthouse until she said that to me. So she uh, she's very brave. And I think she's a great example of why having those stories out there and talking about it for everyone helps the healing process and helps get justice. I'm just very proud of her. Well, I want to thank Lisa Yannick Litwiller, Investigative Systems Editor for Hearst, Connecticut, for joining me in studio, and Hannah Dellinger, a National Hearst Reporting Fellow based in Houston, Texas. Hannah, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show today. I understand that you've got a, a reporting gig coming up. Where will you be based? Um, so actually, I start my first day at the Houston Chronicle in 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this is the second year of my fellowship with Hearst. Um, so I'm very excited to start here, but um, I will be in my free time. Uh, my emails and DMs will be open um, for follow-ups on this, so I'm not going away anytime soon. Well, Hannah, Albert, it's good to hear. We thank you again for joining us. So good luck on your first day. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up, Connecticut was the first state in the nation to pass a law to allow law enforcement to confiscate guns from people to prevent them from hurting themselves or others. Now the federal government's weighing whether more states should pass so-called red flag laws to prevent mass shootings. We're going to find out more about that after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The mass shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas earlier this month are still in the minds of some of us. After those latest shootings, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are considering whether Congress should encourage states to approve so-called 
red flag laws to remove guns from people at risk of harming themselves or others. Now, Connecticut was the first state in the nation to pass such a law 20 years ago. And just days ago, the law was used by state police to remove guns from the home of a Stafford Springs man. We wanted to, to learn more about red flag laws across the country. So joining us now by phone, Peter Jamison, reporter for The Washington Post. Uh, Peter, welcome to the show. Happy to join you. So uh, I described red flag laws, uh, particularly to, to Connecticut situation, but uh, tell us again about uh, how these laws have been adopted and what exactly do they allow authorities to do? Yeah, so there are 17 states as well as the District of Columbia that have adopted some version of what's commonly called a red flag law. The technical term for these laws is often extreme risk protective orders. And basically the idea is that this is a targeted intervention um, to remove firearms from the hands of people who, who should not have them, who pose a danger to themselves or others while not interfering with the rights of law-abiding gun owners. So, you know, for that reason, this has often been seen as a politically palatable uh, form of gun control legislation at both the state and federal level where there's little agreement on um, uh, sort of uh, broader, more sweeping gun control legislation. Can you give us some examples of states uh, that have uh, uh, red flag laws and, and how they've been working so far? Yeah. So what we've learned in reporting on this subject is that there's a great deal of variety from state to state, both in how the laws are designed and how they're implemented. Now, um, in, in a number of states, especially states that have passed red flag laws more recently, Um, There are different types of people who can petition for a court order to remove a gun from someone deemed to be a danger to themselves or others. That could be a family member. It could be uh, a a school administrator, mental health professional. There are other states uh, where only law enforcement officers can take out a petition to remove a gun from someone. And the way this works is, is very analogous to a domestic violence restraining order. Basically, a petition is taken out. A gun is taken away from someone for a short period, maybe up to a week. Uh, After that time, there's a court hearing at which a judge can decide whether the person does, in fact, pose a credible threat. And uh, they can order the gun removed for a longer period. Uh, Many states go up to a year. Some go up to only six months. But um, in in terms of the effects these laws have, uh, you know, one, I I think there are two sort of key takeaways in, in how this legislation can play out. One is that for people who have studied how red flag laws have been implemented, uh, the great majority of cases in which a petition to remove a gun from someone is filed is a case in which someone presents a risk to themselves and not to other people, so people who are at risk of suicide. Um, The other fact is that while in many states uh, there are different categories of petitioners that can lawfully ask for a gun to be removed, in practice, it's still almost always a law enforcement officer who actually files the petition and gets the court order to take the gun away. So uh, what that means is that, you know, some people might have a, a sort of popular conception that a red flag law would lead to situations where uh, a spouse or a psychiatrist is actually going to the court to take out a petition to get a gun removed. That very rarely happens. What typically happens is that someone just calls 911. uh, They're alarmed at the way someone is acting or things they're saying, and they know they have guns. When the law enforcement officer, a police officer, or a sheriff's deputy arrives on the scene, they then educate the person who called them about this option and say, you know, hey, look, there's this tool available to us. If you want to get the gun removed from them, I can 
you know, file this petition and go through with this procedure. So even in states that allow different categories of petitioners, it's still most of the time the law enforcement official who's getting the order to remove a gun from somebody. Now, Peter, there must be some instances in states where uh, because the, the onus is on uh, law enforcement uh, to uh, be the one uh, to uh, go to a situation uh, to counsel people on scene as well as uh, having that risk warrant in, in, in hand, uh, that there are barriers to uh, maybe the staffing that allows uh, law enforcement to, uh, you know, use this law to take guns away from someone who might be at risk of, to themselves or others? Or are there instances of states where they have this law in the books, but it's rarely used? There absolutely are. And I think that's another big takeaway from uh, what history we have with, with red flag laws and, and how they play out is that um, no matter how they're designed, it, the implementation depends enormously on the level of public awareness not just among the general public, not just among people who might be calling police officers who might have a problem with a family member, but with the actual law enforcement officers themselves. Uh, in California, a state of 40 million people, after they passed their uh, legislation enabling extreme risk protective orders in 2016, the law essentially went unused for two years. There were fewer than 10 petitions filed on average per month uh, until publicity began to gear up around the fact that this option existed and uh, local sheriff's offices and police departments began to become aware that this was possible and then they began to have more petitions filed. More recently, you know, we've seen a very telling uh, comparison and test case in Maryland in the District of Columbia, each of which have adopted red flag legislation in the past year. Maryland's law rolled out a few months before D.C.'s did. Uh, in the District of Columbia so far, since the law became active at the beginning of this year, there's not been a single petition filed by anybody, whereas in the state of Maryland, there have been more than 700 petitions filed and approximately 400 orders to remove guns have been granted. And in, in speaking to people, what we heard is that what accounts for that difference is that there was enormous buy-in and enthusiasm for Maryland's red flag law. Uh, as well as a very active training campaign uh, among local law enforcement officials across the state, whereas the situation in the District of Columbia has been a bit more complicated. Uh, we mentioned uh, earlier in the show we had uh, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal on, who's actually one of the sponsors of this bill uh, before Congress, a co-sponsor uh, that would uh, encourage uh, states to look at this as a possible uh, law that could uh, maybe help prevent, uh, again, suicides or mass shootings. Can you tell us about this legislation at the federal level? Sure. So this, uh, what, what's being pondered right now at the federal level, and it could certainly change as it advances, is that this would be a federal grant program that would encourage states to set up their own red flag legislation. And, you know, there are many federal laws that, that do this, that seek to encourage a certain state-level behavior by providing financial incentives. So that's what this would do. But, you know, it's important for people to realize that what is being discussed here is not a national red flag law um, that would uh, allow the uh, the petitioning to take guns away from people across the country on the day it's signed. What this would do is create an incentive for states to adopt their own red flag laws. And then again, I think what we would probably expect to see is a, a, a patchwork system that uh, is set up across the country from there where, you know, depending on their own internal politics and, and depending on whatever history they have with mass shootings, each of the states um, might adopt these laws. 
Uh, before we run out of time, uh, we, so we, we should mention, you know, based on your reporting, uh, again, this uh, having a red flag law might be more politically palatable, but uh, not as effective as some may hope? Well, I, I think um, it, it sort of depends on what behavior these laws are designed to address. Red flag laws very often come up, and they have come up over the last couple of years in the context of these horrific mass shootings that we've been seeing. Now, while the evidence suggests that red flag laws, uh, in their effect, ha- have you know are most consequential in preventing suicide, um, there are isolated cases where uh, someone has threatened a mass shooting. Um, you mentioned a case just in Connecticut, and then guns were taken away from them, and the mass shooting did not take place. Uh, there's a team of researchers in California looking at that state's red flag law history that to date have identified more than 20 cases where uh, there was a threat of a mass shooting that was involved in uh, the removal of a gun, and then the mass shooting did not take place. Now, it's another step, and it's more difficult to establish strict causation, whether it's the law that's preventing the mass shooting. But, you know, those results would seem to suggest that in addition to preventing suicides, these laws do seem to have some effect in cases where people are contemplating killing lots of other people. Mm. And we should note uh, in your reporting, you've also spoken to gun rights advocates who criticized red flag laws, uh, saying that they could bypass a due process. We're going to tweet out um, some links to your stories. Uh, Peter Jemison, again, a Jemison reporter for The Washington Post, who's written about red flag laws. Uh, Peter, we thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Today's show, produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, Thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Uh, Again, uh, Where We Live has a new call-in number. That number, just write it down, 888-720-9677. We surely want you to join the conversation despite that new number. Uh, Hopefully you'll have it uh, memorized in in just a few shows. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.